So needless to say, when you're uh, laid up with the flu, you have a lot of time on your hands. And I also have become somewhat of an uh, expert, if you believe that, on, vir- on viruses. And uh, did a lot of reading, a lot of watching and all that. And I had a particular message planned for today, but one day this made-up word popped into my head as I'm watching all of this coverage of the coronavirus, the politivirus. <laughs> and you know why that phrase came into my head? Because I was going through social media, just scanning and all that, and I was, I don't know if amazed is the right word, but I was just really struck by the level of vitriol and intensity of the political debate in our country today. Now, politics has never been uh, anything other than a blood sport. Let's just put that out there right away. But what amazes me is not only has it gotten worse, but I've seen it infect the church in ways that I have never seen the church affected before. The, The divisions within the church are so stark. And I don't know about you, but that disturbs me because that's not what we're supposed to be all about. We're not supposed to be about dividing and taking sides. If anything, we're supposed to be the most unified people on the planet. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. And I hope, well, no, actually, I may gore an ox, and I'm not trying to, but I'm going to be leaning into the scriptures. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. That ought to be what guides us in everything we do. Amen? Amen. So talking about living by faith in a troubled nation. We've talked about our vision, and it's right over there on the walls, you know, to establish an authentic community of believers who live by faith, are known by love, and are a voice of hope. And we didn't just pull those things out of thin air. 1 Corinthians tells us in 13.13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And it goes on to say that the greatest of these is love. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So we've already looked into scripture and we see these things as being essential to who we are. Love, from our perspective, ought to be self-sacrificial. It's easy for us to love one another if we uh, have a particular affinity, um, but we don't get credit for loving the people we like or for loving ourselves. Love is sacrificial when we extend it to people who might be unlovable or unlovely. So love demands a great deal of us. And hope is confidence in God's promises. But in order to have that hope, our faith needs to be strong. And that's where I want to focus on today because one of the things I see when I look on the landscape and how we're reacting to current events and the news of the day is a challenge to our faith, where we place it, how strong it is, and just how certain we are of what we've been promised. So let's look at what the dictionary has to say about faith. I always go to the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, Some people call me an elitist for doing that, but I figured they started English first, so why not? The fulfillment of a trust or promise, attestation, confirmation, assurance, power to convince, credibility, credit, convincing authority, belief, trust, confidence, a system of belief, 
that which is believed or required to be believed on a particular subject. Firm trust or belief in or reliance upon something, belief based on evidence, testimony, or authority. So there's a theme there. It is basically saying that you have something in which you place your rock-solid credibility on. Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance, no doubt, no equivocation, the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of that which we do not see. We don't have any tangible things we can reach out and touch or see or hear, but we know because of what the scripture says that we have reason to have that hope, that there is an assurance of the hope that we carry. If you read the entire chapter Hebrews 11, it is basically a hall of fame, if you will, of faith. And it talks about all of the saints that came before us, the ones who used their faith as a basis for their lives. And one of the things I think it's important for you to do before you engage in this dialogue that we have going on right now is that you read that chapter before you go into social media and determine somebody is wrong on the internet and you need to correct them. Before you watch the news, before you step into a voting booth, read Hebrews 11. Among the many things you'll find there is not only did these people have that faith in what the Lord had promised, but they did not expect that those promises were going to be realized in their lifetime, and they went forward anyway. Sometimes I think the reason we falter in our faith is because we're expecting immediate return on investment, and when we don't get it, we falter and we fall away. But that's not what the saints did. They, I hope somebody's okay back there. They went and they stepped forward and they took advantage of the assurances that the Lord gave them, even though they didn't know whether they would reap the benefits themselves. And many of them never did. But they continued to live their lives that way. So how's that faith looking these days? How many of you have muted or unfollowed friends or acquaintances in their social media feeds until after the election? My wife has friends who we've known for years. She doesn't want to unfollow them, but she's muted them because she doesn't want to hear what they have to say. Have you been unfriended on social media? Anybody? For political reasons? Okay. Have you fought with family? friends or even strangers about the choices we have this election season. In fact, one of the things that I really despise about some people who put all of their faith in politics is this advice they give whenever it's holiday season and you're going home to be with family or friends, like this upcoming Easter. There's always going to be an article somewhere out there that's going to tell you, this is how you argue with your uncle or your aunt or whoever over this particular political topic. I'm saying stop. It's supposed to be a time of family, a time of love. Don't interject this stuff in there. For just a little bit of time, try to have a little respect and try to have some peace at the table. I I just can't stand the ones who want to do that. Have you ever taken an aggressive stance or used intemperate words in political discussions? I know a lot of people who, if you scroll to the about section in Facebook and you see their religious views, it says Christian, and then you go and read what they posted on their wall, you're thinking, hmm, maybe we ought to double check that. Avoided someone out of fear that a political discussion may break out. Now, that one's me. 
okay? I see a group of people get together and all of a sudden they start talking about things. I just sort of slink away like maybe they, they won't see me. And trust me, where I, it's not easy to do where I work. So, <laughs> How many have rationalized the value of biblical standards of behavior to justify our choices? How many of us have excused something that we know the Lord doesn't approve of, but because that person stands for something that we're really passionate about, we're willing to overlook it. We're willing to put a set it aside. Have you ever questioned someone's salvation because of their political choices? And who are we to do that? You know, they talk about the concept of God judging, you know, judge not that you be judged. Yes, we should be discerning. As Rick always likes to say, we should be fruit inspectors. You can make a determination about people based on the fruit that they produce. Obviously, if we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is active in us, we should be producing the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit should be evident. But we don't know what the Lord has planned for someone's salvation. Now, think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, that thief next to him who asked that he be remembered when he entered into his kingdom at that very moment, everything that ever happened in that person's life was completely invalidated. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. A lot of us are going to be surprised when we get to heaven at who we see there. All right? So we don't have any insight into that. So when they talk about not judging, what they're talking about is not looking upon someone and questioning their salvation. Because that's not up to you. That's between that person and the Lord. Compared their favorite candidate to a biblical hero and the candidate they opposed to a biblical villain. I'll tell you the ultimate example of this. Uh, and this was the uh, Russian uh, bots that were putting ads out on Facebook. One of them was particularly impressive. You see Jesus Christ on one side of the table and Satan on the other side of the table. And they're arm wrestling. And Satan is saying, Hillary is my choice. And Jesus is saying, no, she won't win. And I'm thinking, oh, no. And the thing is that people were sharing that. Turned out later, they found out through their investigation that that was something the Russians were putting out. Think about that now. They know us so well that they know how to press our buttons. Now, I was an intelligence officer in the Air Force. So for anybody who wants to talk about the concept of desinformatia, I studied it. The Russians have been doing that since the days of the czars. They are experts at it. And they know exactly how to manipulate us. And the fact that they can take our faith and weaponize it like that against us really frightens me. Declared one candidate to be God's choice over the other or forecasted the end of America if the candidate we oppose is elected. Whether we realize it or not, kingdoms are going to rise and kingdoms are going to fall. Think about the great kingdoms of the past that people thought would never end. And now they're archaeological digs. Now, do I wish that on any of us? No, this is our home. And I believe we need to care for our home, just like we need to do that anywhere the Lord places us. But we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that just because we're the United States of America, that we're immune from God's judgment. Am I doing all right so far? 
So my observation is this. Character matters, except when it doesn't. We trust God, except when we don't. We are kind and loving, except when we're not, and we affirm the value of every person, except when they don't deserve it. Does this describe us today? Too many of us, I'm afraid. So, what seems to be the problem here? It seems like we have some people who believe that there's nothing more important to God than abortion and marriage and religious liberty. And then there are others who believe there's nothing more important to God than racism, poverty, immigration, criminal justice reform. Do we really think that God is so limited that he can't care about every single one of those things? I've always told people that if they take the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that, that appeal to them, not just the parts that confirm their bias, but if they take the whole counsel of God, they're going to find that they don't land comfortably in either tribe. And that's where we should be. Christianity ought to transcend all of this nonsense. We ought to be a voice of reason in a world that doesn't have it. But it seems like the measure of a person no longer matters. Now, the people of the Bible did not have the luxury of selecting their leaders as we do. If you think about it, most of the time, they were living under a regime that imposed itself on them. But there were a couple of things I was able to find in Scripture where the people of the Lord had a choice. Exodus 18.21. You may remember the story of Moses trying to govern the people by himself. And his father-in-law, Aaron, came upon him and basically said, you're going to kill yourself if you continue to do this. So he gave him guidance in 1821. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. In Deuteronomy, it goes like this. He says, choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. And then remember in Acts, when they were trying to serve the new believers of this growing church, and the apostles couldn't find the time to divert from teaching and discipleship, they basically appointed people to be deacons, sort of as we did a couple weeks ago. As brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. What do you find in those three acts of selection that are common? They were all godly men, people who hated dishonest gain. Bless you. And they were people who were trustworthy. So it seems to me that right there we have a template for what we need to consider when we make our choices. Now, our choices are choices, once again, that are between us and God. Because once you walk into that voting booth, there's nobody there to see how you choose. I always encourage people, choose your conscience, whatever, wherever that leads you. Pray about it. Don't leave God out of the decision of voting. We don't want to leave him out of any other decision. Why would he leave him out of that one? And one of the things I always think about, the Lord tells us not to be a stumbling block. There's a great song called Jesus, Friend of Sinners by Casting Crowns. 
And one of the lines I love is where he says, they keep running toward you, but they're tripping over me. Now, understand this. For some people, the gospel itself is a stumbling block. The idea that a man would come and lay down his life for other people, that the last would be first and the first last, these are things that can be a stumbling block. They seem like foolishness to most people. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about us not putting obstacles in the way of others finding their way to Christ. And sometimes politics can be one of those. If you look at the polls and the things that have been put out about the church in the 21st century, a lot of young people are leaving the church. And one of the number one reasons they say they're leaving is because it's become too political. And by the way, that can happen in any persuasion of church. It doesn't just have to be a conservative church. It could be a liberal church as well. The mainline evangelical churches have been dying off for years. When we start to elevate the church to a point of idolatry, where it's not clear that Christ is first, then that's the consequence. Our witness is affected. We hear about the lesser of two evils. Can you show me where that exists in the Bible? That is not a biblical concept. And what we see as a result of all of these things that we're weaving into the scripture, these corruptions, if you will, that come from the world and affect our witness is that we had, people start associating the gospel with worldly aims and not with the kingdom aims of Christ. One of the things we have to remember is that as the world changes, and Rick has always said the world's not getting better, we should disabuse ourselves of that notion, that loss of freedom and persecution is likely. We can do everything we can to stand against it. And we have the right to do that as American citizens. But just understand that we're not promised our freedom. We should cherish it because it's not guaranteed. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, and you're familiar with this one from the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. John 15, 18, Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So why should we experience anything less than what our Savior experienced? In 1633, he told us, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Again, there's no equivocation there. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In Romans, he talks about the fact that our persecutions are a source of strength. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. In the book of James, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And finally, also in James, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
So I don't want us to take for granted what we experience here in America, the ability we have to gather here and worship. It's a cherished right, and it's one we should defend, but we shouldn't be surprised either if we see that right erode because that's the way of the world. We should continue to be faithful nonetheless and be prepared for persecution if it comes. I want to put some things into perspective. You see up there, Vice President Joe Biden, this is maybe the most important election, no matter how young or old you are and you've ever voted in. Gee, where have I heard that before? We are facing what may be the most important election of our lifetime, if not ever, Ben Carson, 2016. This is the most important election of our lifetime, Newt Gingrich, 2012. This is certainly the most important election in my lifetime, not just because I'm running Barack Obama, 2008. My fellow Americans, this is the most important election of our lifetime, John Kerry, 2004. <laughs> 2000, historically, is the most important national election in my lifetime, Zach Womp, 2000. By the way, he was a congressman from Tennessee, in case you're wondering. It's the most important election of our lifetime, Ralph Reed, 1996. This is the most important election in a generation, Bill Clinton, 1992. And by the way, there's a method to me going all the way back. I'll explain. It may be the most important election of this century, Robert C. Byrd, 1988. This is the most important election in this nation in 50 years, Ronald Reagan, 1984. The most important election of this century, International Union of Electronic Workers, 1980. And finally, I think this election is one of the most vital in the history of America, Gerald R. Ford, 1976. The reason I went all the way back there is that's when I became eligible to vote. So every year I walk into a voting booth, I'm hearing the same message. This is the most important election of our lifetime. So I just present that to give us some perspective. Elections are important, but just wait until 2024 and you're going to be hearing the same thing again. Let's just put it into perspective where it stands in the entirety of eternity and where we are. Amen? All right. This is important because this is where our faith really is tested. God's authority over authority. You think the candidate of your choice is God's chosen one? You're right. I want you to think about that for a minute. If you think the candidate of your choice is God's chosen one, you're right. What does Romans 13 have to say about the authorities. Can you turn there? Romans 13. Romans 13. It's the very first verse. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So for those who say, my man or my woman was put there because of God wanting them there. You're right. But then when the next person comes in and that's not someone you support, God put them there too. Just like God put the one prior to them there and the ones to come and all the way through. God is not sitting in heaven looking at the people that are in charge anywhere in the world and thinking, gee, I didn't see that coming. There is a purpose he is a purposeful, intentional God, and every leader is in the position they're in for a purpose. We don't know what that purpose is. 
It could be one of any, many things. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you think your candidate of your choice is good, think again. Can you turn to the book of John? Turn to the book of John. Chapter 19, John 19. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate is challenging Jesus for refusing to speak on his behalf. And he reminds Jesus of the authority that he has over his life. And how does Jesus respond in John 19, verse 11? You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So, by most accounts, Pontius Pilate was a despotic ruler. Yet, even then, God gave him authority. So, we can't assign good or evil to a person, presuming that because God put them there, they're going to be good. God puts people there for a purpose. We know what his purpose was for Pilate, and Pilate fulfilled it. So, again, I emphasize, we don't know why God put people where he placed them. And Daniel, you don't have to turn there, but Daniel 4, 17 Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar about his dreams. And he told him that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So not only does he place them there, he controls their actions. He controls their hearts. Exodus 9, 12. We know that Pharaoh had his heart hardened. God could have very easily allowed Pharaoh to have a soft heart, compassion for the people of Israel, and to release them without all of the trial that they went through. But God, it says, God hardened his heart. Why did he do that? Well, he had a purpose. In this case, he wanted to show the power of God over all the gods of Egypt and all of the different people and entities they worshipped. And so every time Pharaoh hardened his heart, God showed his power to the point where finally Pharaoh surrendered. So he had a purpose. And again, an intentional, purposeful God will use a ruler however he chooses. And then Proverbs, the book of wisdom, 21.1. You would turn there, please. Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. So the Lord is orchestrating the actions of the leaders that he has placed in power, whether we agree with it or understand it or not. This is also something that God does. He gives us what we ask for, even if it's not for our good. 1 Samuel 8, and I, I would suggest you read the entire chapter if you have an opportunity is about the people of Israel crying out to Samuel for a king. They had grown tired of the rule of Samuel's sons who were corrupt. This was the time of judges where prophets served as judges and his sons were corrupt and they were tired and so they wanted a king like the other nations that surrounded Israel. And Samuel pushed back saying that that's not what the Lord wants but um, he took their petition to the Lord, and the Lord said, let them have it, because they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. 
But then he gave them a whole litany of things that would happen to them if they accepted a king. And basically it meant the king would take everything of value from them and they would cry out to the Lord and he wouldn't listen to them. So he took that message back to the people of Israel and the people of Israel said, give us a king anyway. And so the Lord said, do as they ask. So he's not beyond giving us exactly what we want. Look at Psalm 81, 11 through 13. But my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would only follow my ways. Think about that lament. If only they would listen. He's not going, you know, he gives us free will. I think that's something we, we really miss. It's one of the great gifts that we're not programmed to automatically worship. We're not programmed to automatically fall in line. He gives us the freedom to make that choice because he knows that when we make that choice, it's a choice made out of true love and devotion to him. So when we make choices that go against him, it grieves him. It truly does, but he doesn't stop us if we are insistent on going that way. So it's really important for us to understand, even if it's not for our good, he will give us what we ask for. And he also gives us what we deserve. Jeremiah 29 is all about the exile of the Israelite nation to Babylon. And he's basically providing direction to Jeremiah to provide to the people as they're being dragged into captivity. Now, Israel went through a cycle throughout the Old Testament where they would fall on their faces to God. God would bless them. God would prosper them. Then they would forget what God had done for them and start demanding more or turning to other gods. And he would have to punish them. And then they'd go through the cycle of coming back to God again and bowing down and he would bless them. You know, the one thing I want to point out is not the fact that God punishes them, but how quick he is to forgive when they repent. And that's something we can take to heart, not just individually, but corporately as a church and as a nation. If we turn ourselves around, if we are truly repentant, God is quick to forgive, quick to bless. He does not want us to perish. He does not want us to persecute us. So, when we think about where we are as a nation today, think about the fact that he is a loving God who is willing to give us so much if we'll only turn to him. I want to focus on the story of Jesus walking on water because I think it has a lot of valuable lessons for us when it comes to how we are to confront this intense political environment that we're in today. So if you would just turn to Matthew 14 and we'll just read along. Matthew 14, and we're going to start with verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So what do we learn from that very brief story in the New Testament? The first thing I think we learn is if it's Jesus, we need not be afraid. Secondly, if it's Jesus, we can do amazing things. Think about it. Peter was walking on the water. But he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. The minute he took his eyes off of Jesus and was concerned about all of the things raging around him, all of a sudden his faith faltered and he began to sink. And once Jesus got into the boat and settled the waves, we know he was in control. If there's nothing else that you take from what I say here today, think about these four things because that will be what fortifies you when you look at everything around you and it looks like chaos and it looks like evil is overrunning everything. If it's Jesus, just fix your eyes on him and you can walk the walk of faith and do amazing things. Don't let the waves and the wind distract you or disturb you or cause you to sink and know that he is in control. So, what am I asking us to do based on everything we've talked about? Well, first of all, I don't ever want you to think that I believe we shouldn't participate in the political process. Everywhere the Lord has placed us, he's placed us there for a reason. In the book of Acts 17, 26, he talks about how he has assigned for us the places we should live and the boundaries of those regions. He has us where we are for a reason. So I encourage you to participate to be involved. In 1 Peter 2, it says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silent the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. So I want you to participate, but participate in a way that honors God. The gospel is enough of a stumbling block for people. Don't create stumbling blocks of your own. Even if you disagree, disagree respectfully. Disagree with the fruit of the Spirit. And believe me, if they push back at you with anger, hostility, push back with more fruit and more fruit. I can guarantee you one of two things will happen. They will either disengage because they're not getting the result they want or they will soften. And I've seen it happen where 
They recognize, okay, this person is different. Maybe I ought to tone it down. Maybe I ought to do something different. I also can recommend a social media fast every now and again. One of the things that, uh, one of the great advantages every now and again of sleeping a lot is that you don't spend a lot of time on Facebook or Twitter. Seek unity. If there's one thing that Jesus prayed for us, he wanted us to be united. And when you see how politics can affect the church, this is one that's particularly troublesome for me because we, need to, we should have more in common with each other than we have with any political party. Christians, if we put Christ first, should have more in common with each other than any political party. So I think it's important for us to be together as he prayed for us to be together. Serve people. I talked about in Jeremiah how they were being dragged into exile in Babylon. And one of the really fascinating things that the Lord said to them, even as they were being imprisoned, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So even though they were being dragged forcibly into a hostile kingdom, he said, seek the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Notice that. I have carried you into exile. He made it clear this was his doing, but he still wanted them to be godly people in the midst of a hostile nation. So the Lord expects that of us as well. Stand for God's law over man's, but submit humbly and peacefully to authority. When Peter and the apostles stand, stood before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin lectured them for continuing to preach the gospel in opposition to the directions they'd been given, what was Peter's response? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. But they also did not struggle against the, bounds, the boundaries that had been placed. They obeyed God and they willingly accept the punishment for it. Martin Luther King Jr., in his letter from a Birmingham jail, one of the great pieces of literature, if you've ever wanted to read something, just filled with, with godly direction. He said, and I quote, I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. That was the whole principle behind civil disobedience in the face of just ferocious opposition to them seeking justice. They allowed themselves to be beaten, to be hosed, to be jailed, in many cases killed. But they never returned violence with violence. They willingly submitted to the authority that was over them. But they were faithful to the Lord in their actions. One of my favorite songs is In Christ Alone, which is why I titled this message that way. And this is one of my favorite verses because it's a reminder. No power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. What more assurance do we need? So I felt it was important because things are about to get kind of heated in 2020. I expect that uh, we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot of things that we've 
probably never heard because I feel like as the boundaries are loose and the shackles are loose, things that we thought were unacceptable in political discourse before are, are totally normal now. Um, and maybe I'm old and I, I just remember a time when we seemed more respectful of each other. Maybe that um, uh, was a, a mirage. It could have been. But my desire, my hope is that we will remember our vision and that before we engage anyone, that we will remember that our witness is on display every second. Whatever we think, whatever we say, however we act, we are being watched. And I want people to watch us and to say, what manner of people are these? I want them to be curious. I want them to know more. And I want them to come and seek us out. We can only do that if we follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he performed great things that went against the world's expectations, they said, what manner of man? Lord, I pray that what we have talked about today will be not just a challenge, Lord, but a conviction. That we will examine our hearts and cleanse ourselves of anything that might be a vexation to the Holy Spirit that's in us. Lord, help us to think of our hearts as a home that we have prepared for you, a home that we want to keep in the best order, a home that we want to be clean and to be a place where you want to dwell, Lord. Help us to not only do that for ourselves, Lord, but to do that for the people that you're going to bring into our orbit Lord, particularly in today's world where words can fly around the world so quickly, so instantaneously. We don't know how our words or our actions are going to be received by someone, Lord. And there may be someone out there that's going to see something we say, something we've written, something we do, and their lives could either be changed forever or their hearts could be hardened and they could walk away. Lord, we know where you want us to land. Help us with our witness, Lord, particularly in these difficult times when so much of the world wants us to be outraged and angry and to be fearful, Lord, in a way that causes us to react as if we don't know who's in charge, who the true authority is, as if we don't know who wins the victory in the end. We, know, we have this knowledge, Lord. Take it from our heads, Lord, and put it in our hearts so that we may never forget that in the end, only you have the victory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.